seats. We're going to be in Proverbs chapter 6 this morning. Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs chapter 6. Let's do the uh, smart thing and let's pray before we get going. Lord, as always, um, your Holy Spirit wrote this. You gave this to us for us to learn. And I pray that we could walk in the wisdom of this, not only to just hear it, but to understand it and apply it in all that we say and all that we do. For your glory, Lord, in your name. Amen. If you weren't with us last week, we did all of five, part of six, and part of seven. And the reason we did it that way is because one flowing topic about purity as a single, purity in marriage, purity in life. And it was one of those where it was best to do that all together. So we decided we're going to come back this week and pick up where we missed in chapter six and also in chapter seven. Now, if you've been with us or are studying the book of Proverbs here, you know what we're doing. As we go through this, we're trying to remind you there's not a lot of deep theology There's not a lot of end times. This is good daily practical advice and counsel on how to go out and live as a godly Christian in an ungodly world. Now, most of the time, what we're used to when it comes to Proverbs starts up in chapter 10, those little one, two-sentence little Proverbs. And we're going to get to that here in just a couple weeks. But what we're still doing today is there's these topics. And you have to remember, this is the idea of Solomon, the wisest man that's ever lived, taking this wisdom that God has given him and saying, how do I pass this on to the generations following? And so as we go through this, there's a lot of good things in here for us just to stop and say, okay, that's a good lesson. And so we're going to get into today some of the ideas of, of money, diligence, hard work, God's word, being careful about who we associate with. Good lessons just to remind us is this idea of a father almost teaching wisdom to his son, how we can learn this and apply this to ourselves as well. Remember, our idea of wisdom is this. Wisdom is God's way of thinking. So when you think of wisdom, what is wisdom? God's way of thinking, not according to the world, but according to us. And then we're going to take the knowledge of that and the understanding of it, because you normally see wisdom, knowledge, and understanding all combined in Proverbs. We're going to take God's way of thinking, and then we're going to see how God wants us to apply it, and then we're going to go do it. And that's the goal here. It's not just to mark it, underline it, memorize it. It's to take it and apply it in all that we say and all that we do. So the first thing we're going to run into this morning is this idea of finances. But this is not the typical idea of finances. This is understanding God's role in money, financing, and investing. Verse 1 of Proverbs chapter 6. My son, if you become surety for your friend, if you have shaken hands in a pledge for a stranger, you are snared by the words of your mouth. You are taken by the words of your mouth. So do this, my son. And deliver yourself. For you have come into the hand of your friend. Go and humble yourself. Plead with your friend. Give no sleep to your eyes nor slumber to your eyelids. Deliver yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter. And like a bird from the hand of the fowler. Something I've learned out here is the idea of money. Money makes people squirm. It makes people a little uncomfortable. And I've talked about this before. You know, we can get together and talk. And you can share what's going into your lives. And you'll share some of your deepest, darkest secrets and confessions. But yet when the subject of money comes up, it gets everybody uncomfortable. And I'm always thinking, what you just confessed doesn't make you uncomfortable, but money? Money makes you uncomfortable? And I don't know why that is as a society. Because everything runs off money. It just absolutely does. This world system that we live in right now, everything runs off the idea of finances. And it's so important to understand and have a good biblical understanding of what finances are and how to apply it to your lives and to do it. It saves so much heartache. It saves so much headache. It saves so much problems. And it's good biblical understanding. But if it's something you're not familiar with, if it's something you're not good with, let's be open and honest about it. And let's say, let's see what the Bible has to say. But I think for some reason, it's something we kind of push to the side. 
I've used these examples with you before. I'm absolutely awful when it comes to vehicles, cars. I just don't know things about cars. I don't understand cars. And it goes all the way back from, from the beginning. I can remember when I first got my license. And so, you know, growing up on a farm, grew up around the tractors and everything, understood that, but just the idea of a car. And I distinctly remember one time being in the driveway soon after I got the license and you have your car and you're so proud of your car and you want to take care of it. And so I was just taking care of the car because this is what you're supposed to do. Everybody checks oil. So I'm just going to check oil because that's what you're supposed to do. And I remember my dad was working in the shed. I was out in the driveway and he's kind of talking me through stuff and I'm checking the oil. And I say, you know what? It's a quart low because that's what I hear everybody say. Every car is always a quart low. I don't even know what it means, but it's a quart low. So I go, then get a quart and go put it in. So I went and I put it in and I put it in the power steering fluid because... I don't know anything about cars. (laughs) I learned from early age, when we go out and purchase a vehicle, I'll stop and I'll turn it on and whatever, and I'll go pop the hood and I'll look at the engine. And Dawn, every time says, what are you doing? And I would say, I don't know. But this is what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to look at the engine. That's what you're supposed to do. I used to help with car care ministry and they've asked me not to. It just doesn't work. I don't know things about cars. So I have to reach a point of openness and honesty and go to people that do know something about cars and say, I don't know. The best thing you could do to help me, to help my wife, to help everybody is to say, could you help me with this? And I think when it comes to finances, sometimes we're afraid to say, you know what, I could use some help with this. And I see people in their 20s that could really learn a lot of lessons. I see people in their 30s, 40s, 50s. It's like, boy, decades of poor choices. Look at the spot we're in. So let's just really stop and say, what does God teach when it comes to this? So what he's saying here in verse 1, my son, if you become surety for your friend, that's kind of a fancy word we don't use a lot. Some translations say security. Some translations say pledge. It's this idea, I'll, I'll, I'll cover that. I'll take care of that financially. Now, it's not the idea that you and I are going to the same restaurant and I say, I'll cover your meal. No. This is the idea of I will take legal responsibilities for your debt. It's a much different thing. The Bible is very cautious about this. Proverbs 22.7 says this. The rich rules over the poor and the borrower is servant to the lender. That's a dangerous place to be in this society. Don't become surety. Don't become security for another person's debts. Now, we have to understand some of the verses that go with this, because you may be stopping and saying, well, wait a second, James. We're also supposed to represent Jesus Christ and help people and be there to bless them, but you're saying don't become legally responsible for this. What does that look like then? Well, let's look at some other verses. You don't need to turn there, but it's just back a couple chapters. Proverbs 3.27 says this, do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it's in the power of your hand to do so. So if I have the power to help somebody, I should help them. Galatians 6 tells me this, do good to all, especially those of the household of the faith. So I'm supposed to go help them. So how am I supposed to define this? I got Proverbs telling me, don't do this. Don't become that legal responsibility, that surety, that security for another person's debt. But yet at the same time, the Bible's saying, if you see somebody in need, go help them. Well, I think Jesus finds a really great answer for this. Can you go with me, please, to Luke 6? Luke 6. Jesus sums it up wonderfully. And what does it look like? And how do you find this biblical responsibility of helping people, but also following what it says in Proverbs? Luke 6. Let's go ahead and start here in verse, uh, let's start in verse 30. Luke 6, verse 30. Give to everyone who asks of you. 
And from him who takes away your goods, do not ask them back. And just as you want men to do to you, you also do to them likewise. But if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back. But love your enemies, do good, and lend, hoping for nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you'll be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the unthankful and evil. I do believe there is a biblical responsibility here that we have, Proverbs 3, that we can help people if it's in our power to do so. As it says in Galatians 6, do good to all, but also understanding what it says in Proverbs 6 about those legal responsibilities. So what does this look like? I think what it looks like is this, that idea of love your enemies, do good, lend, hoping for nothing in return. Hoping for nothing in return. Don and I had a situation that happened a while ago where we were um, involved with somebody and the subject of a financial need came up and we were praying and we stopped and said, I think that this is something that the Lord's leading us to get involved with. And we really stopped and prayed and it was this sum of money that we said, okay, this is what they need. And we prayed and prayed. These, this couple was non-believers at the time and we were kind of just talking to them and God had ordained it in our lives where we could be a witness to them. And so this came up, and we were praying about it. And we decided, let's, let's help them. So we contacted them and said, we're, we're willing to do this, this gift to help. So we sat down with them and talked to them about it. And everything turned into, you know, we're going to pay you back. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. And I really thought of Luke 6. And I thought, no, we give this to you in the name of Jesus. Just as the gospel is free, this is free. Freely we received, freely we give. And just try to stop and say, okay, this is not lending, hoping for something in return. This is not we're going to work out this thing. It's just this is what we're going to do right here. And this is how we felt the Lord had led us. And I just encourage you, we're supposed to help. And we're supposed to have this mindset of that we're going to just give it away completely. This idea that it's the Lord's. Now, Dawn has on our fridge at home this book that she read and has one of these giving principles. And it talks about this, and I've mentioned before, that if any time money comes into your life, it's not... The way to, how does it work? If money comes into your life, it's not to raise your standard of living, but to raise your standard of giving. And we've really always tried to live that out. 2 Corinthians 9 makes it clear if God is generous to us, then we want to be generous to others. And we believe that's the biblical principle. And that's what I see happening here in Proverbs 6 is be careful of these legal responsibilities that we can get ourselves entangled with. And if you've ever been involved in one of those, you know the mess that it can become. And you may say, well, I really know this person, or I really whatever. Well, take a look at the wording here in Proverbs 6.1. My son, if you become surety, once again, security pledge for your friend. That's a pretty close relationship. Or if you've shaken hands and pledged for a stranger, a stranger, why would I do any type of financial, legal, binding thing with a stranger like this? Because sometimes the world allures you into more. Real quick story, probably about 20 years ago, there's a family that started coming out here, wanted to get to know them, and um, just couldn't get through the barrier of getting to know them. You know, hey, why don't you come over? Hey, let's get together. And just something just didn't seem right. So finally, one time, they invited us over. And Don and I thought, this is great. We're finally able to get to know them, and how's the Lord moving in your life, etc. So we're sitting there making small talk, etc. Then he said, hey, hey, James, why don't you come out here so I can talk to you a little bit? I thought, this is great. So we turn the corner, we go out, and he's got the grill going, and he's flipping hamburgers, and we just talk a little bit. He goes, hey, I've been meaning to talk to you. This is wonderful. Because I got this investment opportunity for you. It was only 10000 It was only 10000 That's all it was. And I'm like, if you accept Monopoly money, I'm cool with that. I don't know. <laughs> so 
my background's finance, my degree's in finance. As he's explaining this to me, it's like, okay, so we all invest 10000 We all do this. It's like, yeah, I'm pretty sure this is the definition of a pyramid scheme. And it's like, this is why we're getting together. This is what it is. And I thought of these verses. If you've shaken hands and pledged for a stranger, no, I, this, is, this is not of the Lord here. So just please remember the balance of these verses. Proverbs 6 is telling you, be careful, be careful, be careful of this legal responsibility of surety, security, or pledge. Be careful about that. But at the same time, too, there is the understanding of Proverbs 3, Galatians 6. Luke chapter 6 is saying we want to be generous, we want to help, and we want that gift to represent Jesus Christ and all that we say and all that we do. And there's wisdom in these verses, and we'll learn that wisdom from a young age. So then what are we supposed to do then with these finances? Well, take a look at verse 6. Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise, which having no captain, overseer, or ruler, provides her supplies in the summer and gathers her food in the harvest. How long will you slumber, O sluggard? When will you rise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. So shall your poverty come on you like a prowler and your need like an armed man. I find this absolutely fascinating. The God of the universe who is infinitely wise beyond we could ever imagine, Romans, he's unsearchable, his wisdom, decides to explain to us finances by saying, would you look at an ant? That's just fascinating to me. God's saying, consider the ant. Consider her ways and be wise. So this is going to be a fun one. So let's look at the ants. What can we learn from the ants? They have no leadership. That's the first thing you see. They have no captain, no overseer, no ruler. They have no leadership, yet their needs are met. God provides in many ways. Also, I think it also shows us this, that if the ants have no leadership and they can still figure out what to do, us having the leadership of God, we should work as if working for the Lord, not for man. That's the best leadership we could have. So even more so, we should understand. What else do we see the ants doing? You see them having work ethic. You see them also planning. They provide her supplies in the summer and gather her food in the harvest. See, now we're starting to get into this idea of finances and investing, this idea of planning and preparing. I believe this is a biblical concept. I believe that we are called to be generous, to represent Jesus Christ. I believe that we're called to support missions work, support the church. I believe all that. And I also believe that there is a biblical responsibility to also make sure you're planning ahead for the future. Now, here's the problem. People like getting excited about planning ahead for the future. It's amazing how people can get excited about this. The idea of stocks and stock markets and rates of return, and they follow the, follow the 401ks, and we're going to start talking about mutual funds now, and all these things and the money that's going to come in. Okay, let's talk about this a little bit. Can you go with me, please, to Genesis? Genesis 41. There is a biblical concept of planning ahead. That's wisdom. Now, what are you planning ahead for? We're going to get to that one here in a little bit, but let's first talk about this. There is a biblical concept of being wise with what God has given you. There's a term in the Bible called stewardship. It's not your money. It's not my money. It's not my possessions. It's not your possessions. They're the Lord's. So in Genesis 41, what you have going on here is this. You have Joseph who is in prison. Joseph is in prison uh, for something he didn't do, but that's where the Lord has him at this time. Pharaoh is having these dreams, and he has this really interesting dream, where he has these seven fat cows that appear. And then what happens is these seven skinny cows appear, and the seven skinny cows come and eat the seven fat cows. Pharaoh doesn't know what to do, so he's asking people, what do I do? Well, as the story goes, there's a guy that says, hey, I met this guy in prison by the name of Joseph. He's really good at explaining dreams. 
So Pharaoh says, this is the guy that I want to talk to. So let's pick it up here in verse 28. Joseph speaking. This is the thing which I have spoken to Pharaoh. God has shown Pharaoh what he's about to do. Indeed, seven years of great plenty will come throughout all the land of Egypt. That's the seven fat cows. But after them, seven years of famine will arise. That's the seven skinny cows. And all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt, and the famine will deplete the land. So the plenty will be not known in the land because of the famine following that it was so very severe. The seven skinny cows ate the seven fat cows. And the dream was repeated to Pharaoh twice because the thing is established by God and God will shortly bring it to pass. Now therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh do this and let him appoint officers over the land to collect one-fifth of the produce, 20% of the land of Egypt in the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of those good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh and let them keep food in the cities. Then that food shall be as a reserve for the land for the seven years of famine, which shall not be in the land of Egypt, that the land may not perish during the famine. This is just good common sense. You've got seven good years coming. We know this. So you're going to store up 20%. So that way when the bad years come, you have a reserve. This is just wise. This is just financial wisdom. You know property taxes are going to come due. You know it. You set aside for it. You know that eventually your washer is going to break down. Your dryer is going to break down. You plan ahead for that. This is financial wisdom. You know that there's going to come a time and a place where you're physically not able to work, and so therefore you have planned ahead to stop and say, okay, what does that retirement look like? That is financial wisdom. Now, some of you are saying, good, here's the problem. Can you go with me now to Luke 12? Careful what you focus on. I know people that are saved, and they've really got this financial planning thing down. They love it. Oh, they love talking about the financial future and their retirement and their planning and financial freedom. And they have so focused on that, they've lost the concept of eternity. Take a look here at Luke 12, verse 16. Then he, meaning Jesus, spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for your many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will these things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasures for himself and is not rich towards God. You've got to understand the thing that matters is seeing God glorified, seeing souls be saved, the eternity of heaven and hell. Careful what you focus on. There is a biblical responsibility to make sure you're a wise steward of God's money. There's a biblical responsibility to stop and say, okay, I see this bill coming up. I want to set aside and plan ahead for it. That's completely biblical. Dawn and I had some big financial things that were coming up. And so earlier this spring, we started marking them down. We're just going to start praying about them. Lord, how do you want us to lead? And we really went to these verses here in Genesis. We went to the verses in Proverbs and stopped and said, okay. So, Lord, you have told us that now it's a good financial season. Set aside for this bill these things that are coming. You've told us in Proverbs 6 to consider the ant's ways and be wise. But you've also told us in Luke chapter 12 to make sure we never forget about eternity. And I think what happens is, as I see people let the pendulum swing so far to Genesis 41 and Proverbs 6, and look at me, look at my retirement, look at everything I've been blessed with, and they forget Luke 12, fool, this night your soul will be required of you, then whose will these things be by which you have provided? Once again, if God has blessed you, it's not to raise your standard of living, it's to raise your standard of giving. We don't need any more toys. 
we need to stop and say, Lord, how can we further the kingdom and what we do and how we go with this? So please go back now to Proverbs 6. So learning from the ant, what can we learn? Consider her ways. Be wise. Plan. There's an obvious idea of planning and preparing there. You see that. And you also see the idea of work ethic. They're out there gathering and working. Which then Dwight takes us to 9, 10, and 11. And depending on your translation, my new King James says this. Slumber, sluggard, sleep. Sleep, slumber, sleep. A lot of ideas there, right? i got some verses I want to show with you. Can you put those verses up for me, please? The idea of sleep. Do you ever study what the Bible says about sleep? Proverbs 19.24. Lazy people take food in their hand, but don't even lift it to their mouth. That's just a fascinating picture. Somebody's sitting at their kitchen table. They have their bowl of Cheerios, and they got the spoon. They put their spoon in the bowl, and they say, I'm just too tired. I can't even get it to my mouth. There are people out there in this world that have opportunities right in front of them, be it jobs, whatever. They're just too lazy to go do it. That's a biblical truth that happens. Proverbs 19.15, laziness casts one into a deep sleep and an idle person will suffer hunger. It's amazing how the laziness creates more laziness. Dare we say that sometimes it even looks to become generational in some ways. Now please be careful with these verses. I don't want somebody to sit here and say, okay, the Bible's saying this about sleep. That means sleep is bad. Do you realize how many times in the Bible Jesus is sleeping? Jesus loved a good nap. He really did. Take that. That's biblical. And when he got woke up from his nap, I don't know if he was really happy. He calmed the storm and went back to sleep. Listen, there's seasons in life where there's health issues, there's physical issues, where the best thing you can do is use God's body that he's created and let it rest via sleep. That, that is truth. What we're talking about here, though, is when having the opportunity to do something we choose the route of laziness. Proverbs twenty thirteen. Do not love sleep lest you come to poverty. Open your eyes and you will be satisfied with bread. Proverbs twenty six fourteen. As a door turns on its hinges, so does the lazy man on his bed. Just stays in bed, just keeps sleeping. And they wonder why he has nothing. But then there's also the blessing of sleep. Ecclesiastes five twelve. The sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he eats little or much. There is something about just that restfulness of a good day's work where you lay in bed at night and you stop and say, okay, Lord, I hope I impacted eternity today, Lord. I worked as if working for the Lord. And there's that blessing of sleep. But then look at the bottom of that verse. But the abundance of the rich will not permit him to sleep. Sometimes people can't sleep. Why? Too many things to worry about. Too many toys to take care of. Too much money to deal with. Too many investments to worry about. Too much retirement. Too much this. Too much that. And what happens is we're so focused on what we have and keeping it and containing it and taking care of it, we can't sleep. Because there's just too much worry. The Bible has some very strong things to say about sleep. Both good and bad. And just remember here what we're talking about in Proverbs 6. The context of this is they're using the ant as an example. Consider her ways. The work ethic. The planning. The preparing. The flip side of that is the doing nothing. And that's the dangerous area. Let's go back to Proverbs 6, please. Proverbs 6 then takes us into this idea of the worthless man. It says in verse 12, a worthless person, a wicked wicked man, walks with a perverse mouth. He winks with his eyes. He shuffles his feet. He points with his fingers. Perversity is in his heart. He devises evil continually. He sows discord. Therefore, his calamity shall come suddenly. Suddenly, he shall be broken without remedy. This is the guy you got to be worried about. Verse 12, he's worthless, he's wicked, and he's perverse. I like how the Bible translates this, worthless. One translation, good for nothing. 
It's kind of a fun phrase, good for nothing. Troublemaker. Good old King James out there. He's naughty. Don't you just love that? He's naughty. Wicked. Trouble. One translation. He's a villain. He's perverse. Crooked. Corrupt. King James again. Forward. F-R-O-W-A-R-D, which means crooked. So this guy is good for nothing, worthless troublemaker, naughty, wicked trouble villain, perverse, crooked, and corrupt. Stay away from him. How are we supposed to know that? Well, it makes it abundantly clear in Matthew chapter 7 that time will reveal somebody, and by your fruit you will know them. Listen, this is not being judgmental in any way whatsoever. This is looking at the lifestyle choice of a person and stop and saying, this is not a good person to be around. This person needs to get saved. This person needs to know Jesus Christ. So I will be a witness to them. I will represent Christ to them. But I'm going to be very, very careful of the time and energy I invest into this person of a relationship-wise. Because this person is wicked, worthless, and perverse. And God says, be careful. How do we know them? Just watch them. Just watch them. Verse 12, their walk will reveal it. And how they just live their lives will reveal it. Verse 12, their mouth will reveal it. Listen to their conversations. Verse 14, perversity is in his heart. He devises evil continually. He sows discord. His relationships will reveal it. They just will. There's just something that you need to be concerned about with this. And what happens is, verse 15, Therefore his calamity shall come suddenly. Suddenly he shall be broken without remedy. Galatians 6 makes it clear. We do reap what we sow. And if we're out there living this life of perversity and wickedness and worthlessness and deceit, things are going to happen into our lives, and it's going to be our fault for bringing it on. And God is giving us a warning. And he comes right out and says in 16, these six things the Lord hates, yes, seven are an abomination to him. That's that's a Hebrew poetry way that they like to do. There's six things that God hates. No, there's seven. That idea of showing the completeness there. Please note God hates things. First John makes it clear that he's a God of love. The Gospels tell us that you will know that we are his disciples by his love. God loves the world. There's no doubt about that. But there are things that God hates. He hates. And I want to just keep this teaching so simple. If God hates it, I should hate it. If God loves it, I should love it. Let's just keep it simple. God loves Israel, so I'm going to love Israel. God hates this, so I'm going to hate this. I mean, this is just simple. So what are the things that he hates? Verse 17, a proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift and running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among the brethren. Let's break this down. God hates pride. First one, verse 17, some of your translations, haughtiness. Think about this. God can work with murderers, adulterers, liars, thieves, but he can't work with pride. He can't. He can work with murder. Moses was a murderer. David was an adulterer. Jacob was a liar. He can work with all these people. He can't work with pride. See, when you have pride, there's no room left for God to move and work. It's all about you. But God can work with all these other people. Just think about that. He can't work with pride. Pride just limits so much. The next one, lying. I like what David wrote in Psalm 120. Just a great prayer to pray concerning lying. Psalm 120, verse 2. Deliver my soul, O Lord, from lying lips and from a deceitful tongue. Lord, I just want to speak truth. Speak truth in every conversation I have. Represent you in all things. Stay away from lying. The next one, murder. Hands that shed innocent blood. There is the idea of murder. That's wrong. There's also the idea, too, of innocent blood. The importance of life from conception to death. Life is important. 
And if you want to go even one step further, Jesus in Matthew 5 says, if you harbor anger towards someone in your heart, you're murdering them. You may not be literally causing them physical harm, but you are in their, your heart murdering them. A heart that devises wicked plans. People that just want to go out there and do evil. They plan for evil. They think about evil. That's what they want to do. And then feet that are swift and running to evil. Just people that just always get themselves in trouble. They just keep running right back into it. I kind of think of that uh, passage in Peter where it says, just as the dog returns to the vomit. This idea of people just keep jumping back in the pig slop. A false witness who speaks lies. What's the difference between false witness and lying? The way I kind of look at false witnesses, you're obviously speaking about other people. Maybe you're willing to bend the truth. Sometimes I look at false witness as bended truth. And you take some element of truth and you bend it just to make yourself look better, to make them look a little worse. And then you walk away from that conversation saying, I have elevated myself, I have lowered them, so therefore it's a false witness. I have kind of bent the truth a little bit about who that person is. And lastly, one who sows discord among brethren. God has called us to be the body of Christ. So if God has called us to be the body of Christ, we have to understand that there's going to be times we don't want to be part of the body of Christ. Because whatever is good, God is, excuse me, the enemy is going to keep us from. I tell you, listen, you know, there's always a thousand reasons not to be involved in the body of Christ. There's one reason to be involved. God says do it. There's a blessing in being part of the body of Christ. I tell you, every Sunday I read and pray over Psalm 122. You know, I was joyful when they said, let us go into the house of the Lord. Let us have joy in coming together. So the enemy is always going to try to keep us from doing this. And you've got to be careful because there's going to be people at church that are just annoyingly difficult to be around. They just are. And the enemy sometimes plants people there. And sometimes it's just people that maybe it's a carnal Christian or they're in their flesh. I don't know. Paul talks about this. Romans 16, verse 17. Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you've learned and avoid them. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the simple. He says, careful of those people. Careful of those people that are trying to cause problems, and they're trying to cause division. They're trying to cause issues. You know, sometimes they disguise it under truth and love. We've got to be careful about that type of stuff. Because the whole point is we're supposed to be edifying one another. I get sometimes that truth hurts. I get that. But there's supposed to be an edifying that goes on and not a tearing down. And we need to be careful sometimes of sowing discord amongst the brethren. So how are we supposed to take all this now and apply it? This is so much stuff. You know what's going to get back to? It's going to get back to God's word. Verse 20, my son, keep your father's command. Do not forsake the law of your mother. Bind them continually upon your heart. Tie them around your neck. When you roam, they will lead you. When you sleep, they will keep you. When you awake, they will speak with you. For the commandment is a lamp and the law is a light. Reproofs of instruction are the way of life. Chapter 7, verse 1. My son, keep my words and treasure my commands within you. Keep my commands and live. And my law is the apple of your eye. Bind them in your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister. And call understanding your nearest kin. It's not just learning it. It's not just memorizing it. It's not just underlining it. I want to remind you of a couple things right here. 21 of chapter 6. Bind them continually upon your heart. 3 of chapter 7, bind them on your fingers, write them on the tablet of your heart. The Lord wants you to cling to that wisdom that is found in his word. So when you hear a lesson like this, you say, okay, finances, what am I supposed to do? Let's go to the wisdom of the word. Okay, work ethic, what am I supposed to do? Like the ant, let's go to the wisdom of the word. Wickedness, how do I stay away from the wicked man? Let's go to the wisdom of the world. word. This, this idea of what are the things that God hates? The wisdom of the word. It's all right there. But we have to take the effort to do it. We need to bind them in our heart. Verse 
22, when I roam, they lead me. When I sleep, they keep me. When I'm awake, they speak to me. The importance of God's word. God's word is a lamp. Psalm 119, 105. Word is a lamp into my feet, a light into my path. God's word reveals. Hebrews 4.12 says it cuts. Sometimes we need to be in God's word to remind us, to reveal to us what we're doing wrong and then have a heart to say, Lord, I'm willing to listen to this because your word is revealing the sin in my life. But then God's word also washes. Ephesians 5 says that we can be washed by the water of the word. So therefore, when we're in the word, there is this, okay, Lord, I'm learning more about you. I'm growing deeper in you. I can't stress this to enough, and it almost gets to the point it's repeated so much. Okay, yeah, I know it. Get in the Word. It's the only thing in the world that is promised that won't return void. Let's get into that and know it, understand it, mark it. I tell you, if you've got influence at home, influence the kids, influence your spouse, influence who you can in it. Be in the Word. What a blessing it is, and it leads us and guides us. Because you know what? We live in this world of worthless, wicked, evil things. We need to have the wisdom of God to know how to best handle this. Worship team, if you come forward here for the final song. Hey, let's pray this into our lives. Lord, as we just come to you now, we need your wisdom. The wisdom that only you can give. Wisdom in our finances, or should I say wisdom in your finances, Lord. Wisdom to consider the ant, Lord, of what that looks like. Wisdom of dealing with the wicked man. Wisdom of realizing we need to love what you love and hate what you hate. Oh, Lord, help us to be in the word, to to write it on our heart, to bind it on our heart, to really be following you in all that we say and do. Lord, I just think of the next couple weeks of the prayer conference coming up. I pray that uh, people would be blessed by that. Teach us how to pray, Lord. And Lord, I also pray for just the uh, uh, fellowship, the harvest party over at the Jasper's house. I pray you would just bless that as well, too, a time to get together and celebrate who you are. Thank you. And Lord, a new Bible study starting up tomorrow over at uh, Ruth Bartley's house. You're blessing upon that too. Those ladies getting together as they get into the word for your glory. Thank you for what you're doing, what you've done in your name. Amen.